Good morning. If you have a Bible this morning, you're going to want to open it to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. Hebrews 4, 14. Now, if you've been with us for the last couple of weeks, we're kind of going through the book of Hebrews, and we've hit what's best is described as an undulating portion of the book. It goes from great warning to great encouragement. Great warning, great encouragement. Great warning, great encouragement. It's important to remember that a warning is as dire, is as uh, somber as the encouragement that, or, or the blessing that you're trying to warn the people about. Like, for example, if we go downtown and you're in your car and you park in a spot that's an illegal parking spot, and I say to you, you better watch out. If you park here, you're going to get a ticket. I've warned you. But if you say, okay, but what happens if I do park here? And I say, well, you get fined. Well, what's the fine? 22 cents. 22 cents. That's the fine. That's the fine. They don't, they're going to put a boot on my car? No. Are they going to tow my car? No. So just 22 cents. That's the fine. Yeah. Well, that's not much of a warning. You're like, okay, I'm just going to put a quarter on the hood. Let's go. Okay. Like that's all you care. You're like, why did you even talk to me? Okay. But if we go downtown and we park in the same spot and I say, you better not park here because uh, you'll get a ticket. And you say, oh, really? What's the fine? And I say, well, they tow your car and melt it down. And while you're looking for your car, they go kidnap your firstborn. Okay. Like that's a warning. You're like, oh, okay. I'm going to, I'm not parking here unless you walk on the wild side. Then you're like, let's see what happens. Okay. The warning is in relationship to the promise, to the, to the, 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 the punishment, and the punishment to the, to the promise of non-punishment. And specifically here, in the, in the flow of Hebrews, what you have is a warning of failing to acquire the great promise. The promise is so great that to fail to enter it, to fail to grasp it, is so dire that this, the, the warning must be severe. The warning has to be shouted almost because if you miss out on this, it is going to be catastrophic. So what does the author do? The author ties this similar warning and promise structure to something from Israel's past. If you, by disbelief, do not enter the promised land, you will wander the desert until you die. Because that's exactly what happened to our forefathers. And the author is shouting this warning. Don't let unbelief run you off. Don't let unbelief terrify you into not grasping the promise. Now, last week we saw this powerful, powerful warning. If you were here last week, you probably were terrified. You probably aren't here this week if you're here last week. Because the warning was severe. And we're going to take a look at that. And if you weren't here, I'm going to try to really quickly rehash it for you. But in verse chapter 4, verse 14, the author is moving into the great promise. And in verse 14 of chapter 4, it says this. Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, Let us hold fast our confession. Now, what you need to realize is that this this encouragement of who Jesus is, uh, he's the son of God, a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, is directly tied back to this warning that we've seen earlier. Now, let me remind you of the warning. It's very scary. Okay, so if you weren't here, 
Let me quickly kind of grasp for it. It's in verse 13. Verse 13 says this. No creature is hidden from his sight. But all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. That's verse 13. Specifically, the author is talking about the word of God. The word of God comes to us, and the the Bible says, discerns our hearts, discerns our minds, and lays us bare before God. Not just our actions, but our inclinations, our thoughts, the, 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 the positions of our hearts. None of us will escape this thorough investigation by God's word and we will have to give account for it and it's terrifying the words are terrifying the word you may remember last week that we took a long time and looked at was the word exposed in Greek the Greek word used here is where we get our English word trachea trachea which in layman's terms is the windpipe and what the word means is a word picture of an animal with its head pulled back and its throat exposed with a knife to its throat a sacrificial animal about to be killed. Helpless. One commentator says we should translate this verse, that word, exposed, helpless. We will be laid out before God, helpless. Every one of our inclinations, our thoughts, our actions, our intentions, all laid open before God. And it's terrifying. I had a student one time ask me, how do I know if I'm worshiping an idol? And I told them, in modern Christianity, American Christianity, how do you know you're worshiping an idol? Is you have no fear of God. You have no fear of God. American Christianity today presents a God that you don't need to be afraid of. The Oprah God. Just everybody's good. Now, if you lived 300 years ago in Puritan America, you would be worshiping an idol if you had a God you could not love or had no mercy that all you did was fear that God. Well, that's just as much idolatry. You know, we don't do sermons like sinners in the hands of an angry God. We are next week. But (laughs) so you you see, it's very related to culture. And in our culture, our idol is when we have a God that we have no fear of. Because the Bible tells us we need to fear God, but we need to love God. And that there's both this picture. So the picture here is one that is very counter to us of being helpless before God laid out and offering a knife at our throat based on what God will find in our hearts. And all of us know what's there. You know, the word tells us not only don't commit adultery, but don't even look at someone lustfully. It exposes who we are. Don't murder. As a matter of fact, don't even call someone a name in anger. It exposes who we are in that not only do we do those things, but we really want to. We're laid out. We're laid bare. So in verse 14, the author is beginning to shift from this dire warning, terrifying, to the picture of Jesus. Consider then, it says, since then, verse 14, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession. So what the author has done here is say, let us hold fast our confession. Now you're terrified coming out of verse 13. And now author, you're telling me to hold fast to the confession that's laying me bare before God. Are you kidding me? 
And you cannot miss how important the phrase in between is. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God. So there's something about Jesus, the great high priest and son of God, that is meant to take us from this place of total fear to a place where we hold fast our confession. Now, what is that? Well, the first clue comes in this, the word Jesus. The word Jesus, the name Jesus, is not used in the book of Hebrews all that often. Uh, Relative to other uh, epistles and uh, works similar in the New Testament, it's very low on the low side. You can't count the Gospels because the Gospels are, you know, use the word Jesus all the time because they're telling the story. But in epistles like Hebrews, you don't get a lot. It's used 15 times in the book of Hebrews by my count. And Hebrews is 13 chapters long. So maybe one a chapter. Uh, compare that to say 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy is six chapters long, but it's used uh, 14 times there. So almost twice per chapter. And authors are trying to accomplish different things, but why in Hebrews is it used so few times? Well, one of the answers is that when the author of Hebrews uses the name Jesus, he's using it emphatically, meaning to emphasize a specific point. And here, what you see is the word Jesus, Jesus' human name, linked to a human office high priest, immediately followed by a divine reference or, in, or, or uh, in, set inside a divine reference, who has passed through the heavens, the son of God. You have a reference to Jesus's humanity and to Jesus's divinity. And what sets up is a unique, a uniquely Christian dilemma, right? You don't get this in any other religion. We have a uniquely Christian dilemma when we consider the person of Jesus. The big $10 theological word for how we're to think about Jesus is called the hypostatic union. The hypostatic union. And what the hypostatic union is meant to describe is that Jesus is totally God and totally human. 100% God, 100% human. Now, we use words like incarnation, God became flesh, and that's good and true and right. But what it can give us the impression of is that God just put on a bodysuit and walked around, and that's not true. See, that's 100% God in a bodysuit, but that's not Jesus. Jesus is totally God, but he's also totally human. The other Christian dilemma is that we'll say, well, Jesus was just a man whom God powerfully landed upon. No. 100% both. And what Christians tend to do, and this has been true through the, the history of the church, is fall too far on one side or the other. Either fall too far on the transcendent side, meaning God's side. He's above us. He's beyond us. He's transcendent. Or too hard on the eminent side. He's human. He's just like us. Now, I remembered a lesson that Frank Mashburn, who's one of our church members, did on this very idea. And so I thought this is a great way to do this. And what I'm going to do is show you two video clips. 
One that is weighted too far on the transcendent. And one that is weighted too far on the imminent. And I want you to see the distinction. Okay, the first one is the transcendent. Too focused on Jesus' divinity. This is from the 1970s miniseries, Jesus of Nazareth. Let's take a look. He doesn't even blink. <laughs> Do you notice that even the way the actor is lit is, is trans, it's beyond, it's not human. It's, he is a slightly British robot Jesus. <laughs> He's talking about bruised reeds and the, 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 the help that is coming from God. And he reads it like, you will be saved. This is good news. Like that, I'm sorry, that was too much inflection. Um, but you see this weight on, he's unrelatable. You can't reproach this guy. He's, no one can understand him. He's too transcendent. Now, the second one comes from a ni- 1990s miniseries, uh-huh, 20 years, right? And it focuses too much on the imminent. Now, how do they do this? Well, you'll, you'll see. They focus on something totally mundane, but want to present Jesus as human. Let's take a look. Notice both times, both crowds couldn't accept him. One time he's too, and th- th- this time he's skipping rocks and they're going, that cannot be the Messiah. I mean, for real, for real, right? He's too imminent. He's too human. Now, what these two clips will do is expose a little bit of your heart for you. I hope it exposed mine this week as I thought about this. Whichever one we found the most ridiculous is usually shows we're weighted on the other side. Now, for us, usually evangelical Christians, we tend to balk at Jesus being human. Jesus couldn't have skipped rocks and had fun and laughed, right? He was serious dude. He had serious business, okay? It exposes a little because Jesus was totally divine, but he's also totally human. He was 100% both. And the reason that I, I point this out is because the problem presented to us in Hebrews 4.13, laid bare, exposed, is going to require both. You're going to need Jesus to be both to get you out of this dilemma. Now, the author will in the next two verses, the first verse will focus on Jesus's humanity and the next verse will focus on his divinity. And in doing so, will allow us to see the fullness of God's gift to us. Let's look at verse 15. Verse 15 says this, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. See, the first thing that the author does is point us to a human priest who knows what it's like to be us. See, if you're laid bare before God and all your sin exposed, to know that the, the, see, here's the thing. When the animal's on the altar, throat exposed, knife at the throat, who holds the knife? The priest. And your priest has been tempted as you are and sympathizes with you. 
When you, if, if your hope is Jesus, he's the guy with the knife. And the author is trying to remind us that this high priest is not unable to sympathize with us. The Bible has two words for tempted. One's good and one's bad. Okay, the good one is used as tested. And the bad one is tempted. And when it says uh, has been tempted as we are in every respect, don't think of that as universal. doesn't mean that Jesus underwent every single one. It's categorical. It means that he has gone through what we've gone through. You're like, well, Jesus doesn't live in our time, and he doesn't have to do some of the stuff that we had to do. You're right, but you never got pulled into the desert with the devil. So it's equal, okay? So like totally equal, all right? So he has been faced with evil intent. He knows what it's like. He understands. And in order to bring this concept to a tender resolve, the author uses a word that is really out of place at the time that we use all the time, but it's out of place for its time. And it's the word sympathize. The word sympathize comes from the Greek word sympatheo. It's a Greek word. And what it means is to feel beside That's literally what the word means, to feel beside. And it was used for someone who would sit bedside with a sick person and would stay by their bed and watch over them as they were ill. Uh, It was used very specifically of mothers caring for their children when they were sick. Um, That's the picture. We don't have a high priest who lives in a temple behind a wall, who doesn't live like we live, who doesn't understand everyday life, who can't possibly understand what we've gone through. We have a high priest who has been through everything we've been through, but is without sin. Now, how important is it for us to understand Jesus as our priest? The next seven chapters of Hebrews are focused on it. That's how important. Jesus as our priest is a priest who understands us, who sympathizes with us, who understands our weaknesses. And you do not face the judgment at the hands of one who does not understand you and sympathizes with you and sits with you. The encouragement is meant to be one. Yes, you will be laid bare by the word of God. It's unavoidable. It has to happen. But don't be afraid because the one to whom you are being laid open is one who sympathizes, is one who cares. So that's the human. The divine is verse 16. This is my favorite verse when I first became a Christian. I first became a Christian. I knew everybody had a favorite verse. I knew I needed to pick one. So I just flipped through the Bible until I found a good one. I'm serious, and this is the one I found. It's a good one. Verse 16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. Notice the word throne. The only person on a throne is God in a Hebrew understanding. But the author has not changed nouns. He has not changed reference. Still Jesus, our great high priest, who is also the guy on the throne. See, in Judaism, here's the thing. Only one person gets to go into God's presence, the high priest. And even then, only one day a year. What this is saying is a total revolutionary idea that is saying the high priest is God 
And he's inviting everybody into the room that nobody can go into except him. I'm serious. And to do so with confidence. Now, the word confidence here in Greek is literally the word outspokenness. There's a play on words that's going to occur in this verse that's crucial for our understanding of it. Outspokenness. Now, that does not mean glib. Do not hear glib in outspokenness or confidence. That does not mean that you walk into God's throne going, what's up, G? What's up? Hey, I'm going to go. You know, that's not it. That's not, that's not the outspokenness we're talking about here. The outspokenness is one that draws near. The word draw near comes from the Greek word for worship. Uh, it means to literally kiss the hand. So you can see kissing the hand means coming close. Draw to me. Kiss the hand. Another play on words is going to happen here. So outspokenly come and kiss the hand. Well, what do you have to be outspoken about from the verses we've studied? I am laid bare before you, God. Inside me there is doubt and sin and lusts. There's fear. There's also joy and love of you, God. And I see in me love of you and a desire to be your child right beside desires that want to hate you and disobey you. And I don't know what to do. And what this verse says is come with confidence. Come outspoken. Just say it. First of all, you're not hiding from God, Adam and Eve. You're not going to hide from God, but come outspoken. And what happens when we do that and we draw near and we worship by confessing, by being open, by coming and saying, yes, your word says adultery and lust and murder and hate and anger and all those things are wrong. And all of them are in me in greater amounts every day. It seems like what am I to do? It says we may receive mercy. And find grace to help us in our time of need. Mercy and grace for us in English operate as synonyms a lot of times. We don't really distinguish between them. Mercy and grace. Uh, But here they function in a uh, time reference. Mercy for the past. Grace for the future. Meaning when we approach God... Through Jesus, in this manner, we will find mercy. God, I have sinned. I have evil intentions in my heart. Yesterday, I've done this. This my whole life, I've been this. Yes, I know. And you will have mercy because of your high priest, Jesus. God, I know you're calling me to do this and this in the future. I know you want me to live this way. I know that when I leave here, I'm supposed to do this, and there's no way. I've never been able to do it before. How could I possibly think I'm going to do it in the future? By my grace. By my unmerited favor. I'm going to empower you to do things you never could have done before. I'm going to give you a transformation of the heart. But God, I know I'm going to fail. Yeah. And you'll come back here and find mercy. But God, I know I need to keep going. Yeah. And you keep coming back here and you'll find grace. Help. 
in Greek means to answer a call, to answer the cry is what it means. Outspoken. Come find help for the outspoken. And the word receive means to take from the hand. To take from the hand, receive. Are you seeing the play on words here? Be outspoken and refine an answer for your cry. Come kiss the hand and then take from the hand. Mercy for your past, grace for your future. A high priest who can sympathize with your weaknesses. Who will not look at you and say, I can't understand you. Who won't look at you and say, I won't suffer alongside you. And a God who says, it's up to me who gets mercy and grace. And I say, you. Fully human. Fully divine. How can you know the divine son of God cares for you? By the office he has chosen. Warlord? No. Wrathful deity? No. Great high priest. But it's only through him. It's only through him. Would you pray with me? Our Father, we come to you so thankful for the mercies you have shown us in Christ. Father, I pray that as we begin to enter Holy Week, you would remind us of Christ's humanity and his divinity. He cries in terror in Gethsemane and then rises and flattens an entire legion. He concerned about his mother from the cross and then equally says, thy will be done. And it is finished. As we walk forward in our Christian lives, we will wait Jesus one way or the other, too human or too divine. But let us desire to see him fully as both, totally capable of sitting beside us and sympathizing, and totally capable of forgiving our sins. God, I pray you show us the immense, the immense scope of the salvation offered in Jesus. The removal of wrath and the establishment of being your children. Adoption. In all things, we praise your name. In the name of our Savior King, Jesus. Amen couple of things. If you need prayer for anything, our elders, their spouses will be here at the end of the service. Would love to pray with you, especially if you need to meet this Savior King, God and human. You got one of these in your bulletin. This is an invitation card for both our Good Friday service, which is not Friday, but next Friday, and Easter Sunday, which is not next Sunday, but Sunday after. We would love for you to invite someone, maybe somebody you work with, go to school with, and that's what this is for. It's got all the information on it they could possibly need. You can hand it to them. If you need more, you can get more at the welcome centers. But you have to use them. If you get them and don't use them, Jesus will cry. I just, what? Yes, okay, that confirmed. So if you need prayer, please come. 
Otherwise, grace and peace till next week. We'll see you.